Good morning. How are we doing? It's good to see you guys. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Tim. I'm one of the ministers here on staff. As you can tell, today we are continuing our walk through the book of Matthew. And if you've been with us uh, the past few weeks, you'll remember, uh, hopefully, that we just finished with what's traditionally called the Beatitudes, right? Oh, there in Matthew 5. We just finished... The Beatitudes, which is where Jesus gave us a picture of what it looks like to live blessed in this world, for his disciples, for his church to be blessed in this world. And it actually looks like a lot of weeping, it looks like mourning, it looks like being poor in spirit, it looks like being persecuted for righteousness' sake, it looks like being merciful, and it looks like being a peacemaker, that's what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God in a world, and even with hearts that oppose the kingdom of God. And this morning, Matthew is continuing that train of thought. He's going to speak to his disciples about actually the effects this sort of kingdom-centered, blessed way of living has on the world around them. What we'll see today that as his disciples are persecuted, as they mourn, as they are merciful, and as they live under the rule and reign of Christ in a world and in a culture and even in relationships that revile and war against Christ's kingdom, they'll actually have an impact on this world. A positive, a joyful impact, actually, so much so that Jesus says that by living according to his word and his teaching, the world that wars against his kingdom will do something miraculous, give glory to the Father. That is the effect of living in submission to Christ, the citizens of his kingdom. That's the effect that it has on the kingdoms of this world. And it is for this purpose that Christ has established his church, that the kingdoms of the earth might be blessed and they might glorify the Father. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus speaking to his church, to us, reminding us that we who were once in darkness have been called out of, out of the darkness by his grace, yes and amen, and for a specific purpose purpose. I like to sort of summarize what I'm about to say in the whole sermon. Uh, at the beginning of the sermon, I, I kind of give you the answer, and the rest of my sermon is just me showing my work of how I got there. And so here's what we're going to see this morning. We, the church, have a job to do. We, the church, have a job to do. We've been called out, of his, out by his grace for a purpose. He's established his church for a reason, and that is to walk in obedience to bless others, and to glorify God. That is what Jesus is saying this morning as he calls us salt and light. We say that all the time. We'll pray that, you know, Lord, pray that we would be salt and light in the world. But what does that actually look like to be salt and light in the world? It looks like living in obedience. It looks like blessing others. That's what happens if you obey, walk in obedience. You will bless others, and it looks like glorifying God. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's pray, ask God to open our hearts and we might have ears to hear his word and then we'll hopefully hear his word today. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your abundant grace to us. I pray now as we, as we just settle in to open your word and study, I pray, Lord, that uh, your, your word would be our treasure, that we would find life in the words. Uh, and I pray, God, that we would uh, submit ultimately to your commands, that you would make us uh, a faithful people, that we would serve you, that we would honor you with the way that we live our lives. We cannot do this apart from you. We cannot do this apart from your grace, from your spirit. 
So we thank you for the gifts that you've given us. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would make us faithful. We need you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's begin with Matthew 5.13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, which is a weird thing to say to somebody. Obviously, if... Now, we have, because of this passage, sort of this thing that we'll say to people or say about people, if they're like a hardworking, good, you know, reliable person, we'll say, you know, you can trust that mechanic. He's a real, you know, salt of the earth type of guy. I was having a conversation with Josh Steves last week where he was talking about some guy that was really awesome. He was like, yeah, he's just salt of the earth kind of guy. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to, that's what we're talking about next week. But apart from that phrase, if I just like walked up, if I was like, hey, good to see you, Todd. You're salt. Be like, what? You'd be really confused because you have no idea what I'm, what do I mean? Am I like insulting you? Like, am I saying you're salty, like kind of rude? Like I was expecting sugar, which is nice, but you're kind of salty, which is bleh. I don't like you to be around. Or am I complimenting you? Am I saying, you know, bland food? Maybe I'm insulting the rest of you. This place is bland. But when Todd walks in the room, whew, Good thing there's some salt. It kind of restores the, the goodness of the room. I don't know. What do I mean? Because you could read a lot of interpretations into what I'm saying if I called you salt. But what matters is what I actually mean. And likewise, what matters here is what Jesus means by calling us salt. Okay? We could read a bunch of interpretations into this text. But we don't want our interpretation. We want Jesus's. Right? So Matthew 13, 513, once again. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So here's what we need to figure out in order to understand what Jesus is communicating. We actually need to answer three questions. Those are, what is salt? (laughs) We're going to get real deep today. (laughs) What is salt? Both as Jesus is talking about it and metaphorically. What is saltiness, both what's Jesus talking about and what what does he mean metaphorically, and can salt lose its saltiness? Those are the questions we're going to work through because that'll really help us give a little bit more clarity on the point Jesus is making with this metaphor. So first, what is salt? Salt, in the ancient world, was an essential part of daily living, and it served two primary purposes, to flavor food and to preserve food, which, by the way, are the two primary things we use salt for today. And so, obviously, salt flavors food. It enhances flavor. It makes food better. When you cook at home and you have a tendency to cook food that's kind of bland, salt is probably what you're lacking. Just add a little bit more of that. And it was the same way in the ancient world. Salt was used to make food taste better. But also, salt was used as a preservative. Salt was used in preservative. Think of cured meats like prosciutto or salami or like hard cheeses like Parmesan. Those aren't like brand new inventions. People have been doing those things for a long time. And the reason that those meats can sit on the shelf and not spoil is because they're covered in and filled with salt. So salt is seen as this miraculous thing that you can can rub onto something and it doesn't spoil. All of a sudden, it preserves that thing from decaying. So you can see why salt would be pretty essential in the refrigeratorless ancient world. It was universally recognized for its value, something valuable to have around. You could even trade salt at, at the market, like currency, because everybody could always use a little more salt. It was extremely valuable and extremely effective at making food have flavor and preserving it. 
And so notice what Matthew is honing in on and what Jesus is communicating here with this metaphor. Last week, we wrapped up the Beatitudes and Jesus described what his disciples looked like, the distinctive characteristics of Christians, poor in spirit, meek, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness at stake, and he calls those people blessed. His disciples are blessed. And now, the context this morning, right after he finishes the Beatitudes, is using salt as his metaphor, he's turning to his disciples and saying, you who are blessed are meant to be a blessing to the earth. You who are blessed are meant to be a blessing to the earth. You are the salt of the earth, and I'm employing you to be a really valuable thing to have around, to be a blessing to the earth. And in the same way that salt is essential for life, you, my church, are an, have an essential job to do here on the earth. Like make the place better. Preserve what is polluted by sin, decaying from sin. And so what is salt, according to Jesus? Something extremely valuable, essential to life, something that has a positive effect even, wherever you sprinkle it. It gives taste to what is tasteless, and it preserves what is decaying. And likewise, he tells his disciples, he tells us, the church, you are the salt of the earth. You are extremely valuable. You are, in fact, essential to life. Where I sprinkle you, you ought to have a positive effect. You ought to act upon and within the world, giving to the world what it does not have and preserving the world from the decay of sin. So that's what he means by salt of the earth. What is salt? The church. The church employed by God to supply to the world what it does not have. Which, what does the world not have? Saltiness. That's why it needs salt. It lacks saltiness, which begs the question, what is saltiness? I assume we all have a good grasp of saltiness. I would hope so. In everyday life, you've probably had French fries that were oversalted one time. You're like, ooh, that's too much. Or maybe you've been baking and you accidentally switched out the, the salt for the sugar. That's a horrific experience, right? You know a great deal about saltiness. Or sometimes maybe you're following a recipe, you're like making a soup, and this person, because a recipe is supposed to help you make that thing and make something that tastes good. And so that person was doing a great job. The whole recipe, they were like, hey, this is exactly how you make this delicious food. And at the end, they just kind of gave up. And they said, add salt to taste. Like, oh, I don't want to help you anymore. I just want you to figure it out. Is it a teaspoon, a tablespoon, a cup? Like, what am I supposed to do here? They're just like, you got it. I was helping you, but I don't want to anymore. They require you to have this basic perception, this basic understanding of saltiness, this understanding of really the effectiveness, the potency of salt. And that is what saltiness is. Saltiness is the effectiveness of salt. The gauge by which you can measure whether or not the salt you've added to a recipe is working properly or not. Because if you add salt to food that used to be bland, and after adding the salt, it now possesses saltiness. Well, look, you know your salt is effective and having a positive effect on what you sprinkled it on. And likewise, this may not be immediately clear at first glance, but that's the point of Jesus' metaphor. Metaphorically speaking, saltiness for the church looks like obedience to God's word. Saltiness looks like obedience to God's word. Looks like walking in obedience to God's word. That's how you can tell whether or not the, the salt is actually salty. That's how you measure the effectiveness of a church or the saltiness of a church. Do they walk in obedience? 
to God's word. So how do we know that's Jesus' point here? Well, this is sort of the difficulty with line-by-line expository sermons because we, we miss the, the big scope of the, entire, uh, of the entire book. But if you go home and read your Bible, we hope that this is not the only time you crack your Bibles open. If you're at home reading your Bible, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, sort of where this is embedded in the middle of, if you zoom out, you're going to hear Jesus saying again and again and again, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, whoever, whoever's angry at his brother is a murderer. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, whoever looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart already. The next several weeks, as we walk through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, they're going to be filled with Jesus' commands to the church, a brief survey on what it actually looks like to be salty in a world that lacks saltiness what it looks like to live according to the law of the kingdom and to walk in obedience to God. Because that is the exact thing that the earth needs. That's the thing that it lacks, and that's the thing that it needs. It needs obedience to God's word. That's what saltiness saltiness looks like, walking in obedience to God. So what is salt? The church, employed by God to supply to the world what it does not have. And what is saltiness? What is it that the world does not have? Obedience to God. It's what the world lacks. Look around. There's no obedience to God. And lastly, one more question to cover before we leave 13. Verse 13, I never have to talk about salt again. Can salt lose its saltiness? Can salt lose its saltiness? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, whether you realize it or not, there's some controversy here. There's a controversy here because, and so, you know, I have to mention it. Jesus seems to suggest that salt can lose its taste. But is that true? Can sodium chloride, can table salt, a very stable compound, nerd, can it lose its taste? Spoiler alert, no, it cannot. Salt cannot lose its taste. But Jesus says it can. So, I mean, that's it. Let's pack up, go home. Our faith's in vain. You should just find a new religion with proper views on salt. Now, here's what I think is going on here. I think that Jesus actually assumes that we're smart people and assumes that everyone knows salt doesn't go bad. I think Jesus assumes, in the same way that later on in Matthew, he's going to assume everybody knows, like who has a brain, knows a camel, can't fit through the eye of a needle, if you remember that. It's supposed to be a ridiculous statement that everyone would obviously know, oh, that can't happen. It's a ridiculous statement. He's making a point here, but that point sort of gets lost in translation because we tend to think of people from the ancient world as idiots. Right? We, we, they didn't know about germs, and they didn't know about the earth being round. They didn't even know about America, the greatest country in the world. So how can they be smart at all? You know, poor ancient people, they probably didn't know that salt doesn't go bad either. Bless their little ancient hearts, right? And if you think that Jesus thinks salt can spoil, then you're going to miss the point. And this has led some people to argue, this is how I've heard this text explained, if Jesus 
actually thinks salt can lose taste, which he must because, again, those little ancient people, not a lot going up there. So poor, bless their hearts, ancient people. He must be talking about some different type of salt that's impure, that actually can go bad. That must be what he's talking about. So they'll say that Jesus probably got his salt. They'll go, oh, I know, the Dead Sea, that's salty, and it has salt, kind of, that's not really tasty. He's probably talking about the salt that's gathered from the Dead Sea, which, even though that's further from where Jesus lived in the Mediterranean Sea, and that salt is very pure and was actually ubiquitous, don't think about that. Just think about how he probably got his salt from the Dead Sea, and that salt is mostly sand and minerals, has very little salt in it. It's more like a salty rock. It's not really that salty at all. And if you're using that type of stuff as your salt, and say one day you left it out in the rain, well, the sodium in it would dissolve and you'd be left with a heap of sand. And so Jesus is saying, don't let the church be filled with impurities or the rains of culture will take the saltiness out. That's typically how I've heard this explained. But there are a couple problems with this story. I'll just share a couple. I could share more, but it's a kindness to you. I'm tired of talking about salt. First off, Jesus refers to whatever he's talking about simply as salt. He just calls it salt. And in the ancient world, salt was no different than what we call salt, or what we call sea salt. It was oceanic salt, which is a very pure form of salt. And it was much more widely, widely available than the Dead Sea salt, which is very impure and tastes completely different. Those two things are very different things entirely. Think of Epsom salt. Imagine you came to my house and we had like tortilla chips that were unsalted and you're like, can I put some salt on it? And I I put down a bag of Epsom salt. I was like, go to town. You're like, no, this is, yeah, sure, it's called salt, but this isn't, no, this isn't gonna accomplish what I'm looking for. You're not gonna put it on food. I guess it's good for soaking or something, I don't know what it's for, but it's a different category from salt. And if Jesus was describing something that was seen in the ancient world like that, he probably would have used an explicit term to talk about it. His whole metaphor apparently depends on you knowing he's talking about an obscure form of salt in order to get the metaphor. If that's what he was doing, he'd probably call it Dead Sea salt instead of just referring to it as the most common thing that people in the ancient world knew, which was just oceanic salt just plain salt. Additionally, this impure salt story, it doesn't have any sort of historical evidence backing it up. Okay, it's, it's hard to trace the exact origin of the story, but it honestly seems to come from people saying, man, ancient people so dumb, goodness gracious, and they think salt goes bad, and Jesus thinks that, but we can't let Jesus look like he doesn't know what he's talking about. How can we make him right? <gasps> Dead sea salt, and it rains, and then you got no more salt. Perfect. That seems to be the origin of the story. It comes around uh, a little bit late, very late in church history, like 200 years ago, and I don't know who, who started it, but that's where it seems to come from. That's not a great way to go about biblical interpretation. It seems like, in Jesus's culture, the idea of losing its salt, here's the biggest problem with the theory. In Jesus's culture, the idea of losing salt, salt losing its saltiness, I mean, was regarded as completely impossible. Okay, how do I know that? Around 90 AD, about 60 years after Jesus' resurrection, there's a Jewish rabbi named Rabbi Yehoshua, okay? And he's debating with these wise men in Athens. Okay, this is a deep dive into salt. I told you, this is gonna be great. We wanna study the Bible. You're getting it, okay? So, 
This debate is recorded between Rabbi Yehoshua and these men in Athens, and it's recorded in the Talmud. You're familiar with the Talmud? It's this Jewish collection of, of wise sayings from Jewish rabbis. And so they're Jewish rabbis not long after Jesus' resurrection. They're probably going to be pretty similar culturally in the way that they think about the world to Jesus, right? Except for the whole Messiah thing. But besides that, they're going to be very similar. So Rabbi Yehoshua is debating with these wise dudes in Athens. And in the midst of this debate, the wise sages of Athens say, say to us a matter of nonsense. Okay. Rabbi Yehoshua said to them, there was a certain mule that gave birth. Hey, here's a fun anatomy lesson for you guys. Mules don't give birth, right? That doesn't happen. There's no such thing as a mule giving birth. And so they say to him, can a mule give birth? Rabbi Yehoshua said to them, this is why it is a matter of nonsense, as it is impossible for a mule to give birth. Glad they wrote that down. What a weird, they're like, the Talmud, you must read this to gain wisdom. I'm like, Adam, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it yet. But this sort of intros, it's an introduction to this entire section of nonsense where Rabbi Yehoshua is just showing what a good debater he is, even if they talk about things that don't make sense at all. And so the wise sages, they come to him and they say, how do you harvest a field of knives? He says, oh, with the horn of a donkey. They go, uh, wait, does a donkey have a horn? He goes, and is there such a thing as a field of knives? I'm like, What? What's happening? But apparently, it's, it's valuable to read. And by the end of it, though, here's why I bring all this up, because it, what's relevant is in that tennis match of ridiculousness, just like rhetorical debate show-offery, comes this. The sages of Athens then asked another question. When salt is spoiling, ooh, this is relevant, with what does one salt it to preserve it? Rabbi Yehoshua said to them, with the placenta of a mule. There's a word you didn't think would be in my sermon today. Again, a mule doesn't produce offspring. There is no placenta of a mule, okay? So they said to him, but is there a placenta of a mule? Rabbi Yehoshua said to them, and does salt spoil? It's ridiculous to think that salt would spoil is what he's saying. It's nonsense, just as ridiculous as thinking a mule could give birth. So commenting on this passage in the Talmud, the translators of the NET Bible translation and their translation notes, which is a great little document, they wrote, the point appears to be that in Rabbi Yehoshua and the sages of Athens and their little debate, the point appears to be that both a mule giving birth and salt losing its flavor are impossible. The saying, while admittedly late, 60 years after Jesus' resurrection, suggests that culturally the loss of flavor by salt was regarded as an impossibility. Genuine salt can never lose its flavor. So, why do I tell you all of that? I don't think Jesus is talking about some obscure form of impure salt. Rather, I think that Jesus knows that genuine salt doesn't go bad, and that's his whole point. Because just like genuine salt never loses its flavor, those who are genuinely his people, the true church, will walk in obedience to God. Salt is going to be salty, and the church is going to obey God. If salt isn't salty, guess what? You're not eating salt. You're eating dirt. And likewise, if we, the church, refuse to obey God and refuse to submit to his word, we are not the church. It's all or nothing. 
Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the means by which my kingdom and obedience to God is going to be spread, sprinkled about the earth. But if you reject my commands and refuse to walk in obedience, then what can be done? Because you're the means by which that's spread. If you're not interested in my kingdom, then like we're out of means. There's no other, there's no other salt. You're, you're kind of it. Salt without saltiness is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And a church which rejects the word of God is no longer good for anything except to be cast out of the kingdom they were supposed to have served. And so can salt lose its saltiness? No, that would be crazy. And likewise, neither can the church. It would be crazy to call yourself the genuine church of Jesus while completely rejecting his commands and not walking in obedience. That seems to be the point Jesus is making in verse 13. Can salt lose its saltiness? No, and neither can the church. So with that understanding of what Jesus is communicating with this metaphor, once more, Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus says, you, church, have a job to do. There's work to be done, and first it is to walk in obedience to my word, to be salty to a tasteless world. I'm imploring you to be salt to a lost and a dying, decaying world world, decaying in disobedience. The church is the means by which I will preserve the word. But if you despise my word or preserve the world, but if you despise my word and reject my commands, you'll just be making things worse, like expecting salt to not go bad or meat to not go bad that you threw a bunch of sand on. Just going to make it worse. Therefore, the church's job to do is to walk in obedience to God's word. And now, 5, verses 14 through 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So Jesus adds a new metaphor, okay? When someone gives two metaphors, the second one is typically there to illuminate the first, okay? So the church is employed by Jesus to be salt, and now it's employed by Jesus to be Light And notice here the job the light is employed to do. Why is the light even lit in the first place? Is the light there to revel in its lightness, revel in its blessedness, soak up the benefits of being light in a dark place, or does it bless those in the darkness? Does it bless those around it? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You not only give taste To what is tasteless, you give light where there is darkness. So our job is to walk in obedience. And in walking in obedience to God's word, Jesus further unpacks how we actually have a positive effect on those around us. And like the light of the world, our job is to bless those around us, to bless others. We have a job to do, and it is to bless others. And just like there's no such thing as a genuine church that doesn't walk in obedience... There's no such thing as a genuine church that doesn't bless others. We're called to be a light where there is darkness. 
And I love in verse 14 this image of a city on a hill because first it's a picture of a community. It's not a light on a hill, it's a city on a hill. The mission of the church is not up to just one individual or just one type of individual, one charismatic pastor or just the Christian go-getters or the extroverts. The mission of the church is given to a community of faith, not just an individual. We are a city on a hill, and you cannot obey what Jesus is asking of you here, severed from the community, from the city. Each member is a valuable and necessary contributor to this work. And private, personal holiness will not accomplish the work that Jesus is describing here. Sure, yeah, you should absolutely pursue personal holiness, but your holiness is not for you. It is not private, and light is not for itself. It is for the sake of the community around you. And the other reason I love this image of a city on a hill is that the metaphor, you know, I'm an artist. I'm a very musical, poetic, you know, oh, I love art and metaphors. And so as I read this, there's so many applications. It's actually a beautiful image, the city on a hill, because first it points to just think of people wandering in the darkness and the wilderness, looking for rest, looking for a place to finally be free from the dangers of everything that comes with darkness, like animals and people trying to rob you. And then you see in the distance this glow, You see in the distance this hill that's lit up by this beautiful city. You're like, I want to be there. That's where I need to be. Here feels horrible. That looks like rest. At the same time, this metaphor points to the vulnerability of such a city. If you're you're someone who loves the darkness and you're looking for the next city to, you know, you're going to take over the wilderness, you're looking for the next city to attack, you just go, "Uh, oh, let's, let's start there. Look at that place. Yeah, it's easy. Can't you see it? It's so easy to see. Let's go attack there. Those who love the darkness, they find an easy target for their attacks, which is why Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted by those in darkness because of their righteousness, because of their light. But finally, and I think this is the focus here, a city of light in contrast to a world of darkness cannot be concealed meaning that the church cannot be anything other than distinctly different from the world of darkness. The active presence of the church in the world displays for all to see a contrast. And that contrast is not social weirdness, all right? Sometimes people hear, we're supposed to be different, you know, and we're supposed to be weird in this world, and that's why we all have long dresses on. I'm like, no, you're just weird. You just look weird. And that's not... That's not the contrast that Jesus is looking for. He's talking about a contrast of behavior, of action, a contrast like Jared mentioned last week. When kids need adopting, the church adopts. We walk in obedience to care for those who are vulnerable. That's the contrast, not just a mental exercise, an active exercise. This is a crazy one. Whenever there's debates about politics, Christians act differently in the context of those debates with their neighbors on their social media, right? I'm not saying they think differently. I'm saying they act differently. That's the contrast. For example, Christians pray for and respect and honor and love and see as human even the people that are voting for things that make our lives worse. Christians pray for and love. Do you understand that? 
How many of you pray for and love your own families? It's hard to pray for and love your own family, but what does Jesus command us later in this chapter, Matthew 5, 43-48? You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's how the world operates, right? If we do that, there's no contrast between the light and the darkness. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father is, uh, who is in heaven, so that you demonstrate that you are a, that you're genuine salt, that you're genuine light. Because the people who are the sons of God walk in obedience. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Saying there's no contrast there. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a contrast. A city like that, a city that prays for and loves its enemies, cannot be hidden. And though persecuted and attacked and mocked and disrespected and hurt, we shine through the darkness walking in obedience to God's word. All of God's word, not just our favorite verses, thereby blessing even those that despise us. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now see this. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Again, this is another, Jesus is pointing to something ridiculous. Well, in the ancient culture, you would cover it up with it. No, that's not what he's saying. He's pointing to something ridiculous that no one would do. Who on earth would light a lamp and cover it up? No one does that because that would defeat the whole purpose. Likewise, how ridiculous would it be for our righteousness and our Christianity if that was limited to this building on Sunday morning? That's like lighting a lamp, a really beautiful lamp, and putting it under a roof so no one out there can see it. The church is a light meant to shine in the darkness, shine through the way that we live and act all of the hours that you're not in this building. And the way you act towards your spouse or your family or even some, some of y'all with blended families and you have an ex-spouse, the way that you treat your ex, the way you treat your spouse's ex. I want everyone to think of people who on a weekly basis make your life worse. And how do you act towards them? Is it in accordance with God's word or is it in accordance with some other way of living? Is there a contrast? Are you a blessing to their life? Or are you working to undermine and cut them down at every opportunity? Make them look like fools. The light is meant to shine in the darkness, not be limited to this building. The light exists to give light to all in the house, to bless all that are around it. We cannot have an invisible faith that doesn't produce good works outside of this building. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my my dear friend Dietrich, uh, with this passage in mind, he writes, flight into the invisible. Flight, <clears throat> flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. 
a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. (laughs) He's writing there to churches in Nazi Germany who were content to limit the light to their church gatherings on Sunday morning, but it never went out. But we have an active and a contrasting role to play in our world outside of this building. We have a job to do, to walk in obedience and to bless those around us. That's exactly how Jesus explains his metaphor as we end in verse 16. Ooh, I'll be okay. Don't worry about me. Goodness gracious. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love going through the Gospels like Matthew after being in a book like 1 Corinthians because Jesus is like, here's something weird I said, and here's what I meant. And Paul's like, you don't know Greek poetry? Sorry, you're dumb. Go read a commentary and then learn from me. You know? So I'm really appreciative for what Jesus is saying here because he just explains the metaphor. Jesus says, you're the salt of the world, you're the light of the world, and in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Notice the focus on action, on work. They may see your good works. And ultimately, what job is Jesus employing his church to do? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have a job to do, church, and that is to walk in obedience, to bless others, and ultimately to bring glory to God our Father, to glorify God. Not to glorify ourselves as more righteous than those people over there, or being on the right side of history, or holding the line on right thinking, or having the right view of some sort of doctrinal debate, the goal of any righteous living and any obedience to God's word is the glory of the Father. R.T. France, uh, who wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he writes, that's generic, commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. He's a guy that studies the Bible. The goal of disciples' witness is not that others emulate their way of life or applaud their morality, but that they recognize the source of their distinctive lifestyle in your Father in heaven. The church is a city on a hill, which means that the people in our lives can see how we live and how we act. So then, who is glorified by the way that you live your life? Who gets the glory for your lifestyle? Jesus will spend the coming weeks Uh, And the rest of what follows in in chapters 5, 6, and 7, even beyond detailing examples of what exactly it looks like to glorify God by the way we live our lives. And so we'll get into more specifics as the weeks follow, so look forward to that. But for today, as we close and we take communion, I want to spend some time examining ourselves and hopefully lifting up the glory of our God in the gospel of Jesus, who is our perfect Savior, perfect as God is perfect, amen? Amen. Now, the sermon's not over when we take communion, right? The sermon's not over. Don't turn off your brain when we get into communion. Communion's the, the high point of what we're trying to communicate here. Okay, it's like making this long journey up to a mountaintop, you know, working through the sermon, finally getting to the overlook, and I'm like, look at what we're seeing. You're like, what? I'm ordering, I'm ordering lunch. Sorry, what? As we take it now? Okay, great. Uh, I thought we were done here with this exchange. Don't do that. Don't turn off your brain. Communion is the message. It is the high point of what we're 
communicating here. This is what we're here to take in, this glorious gospel of grace. So don't go anywhere. We're going to pray, and then we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, that that is the result of the miraculous work of Jesus. That is the result of the gift of the Spirit. I pray now as we, we examine our hearts, you would, uh, you would teach us, we would see our need for you, God, that we would recognize uh, our desperation, our desperate need for your love, for your forgiveness, and for ultimately Christ's righteousness, that we can do nothing apart from you. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in the gospel of your son. It's his name we pray. Amen.